0: showtime sports presents showtime boxing with eric raskin and kieran mulvaney
1: hello and welcome to another episode of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney with my co-host eric raskin i am kira mulvaney uh and uh eric it's almost seven years now you and I have been podcasting together, first at HBO and now Showtime. In that time, we've had some, I mean, look, wonderful colleagues and co workers Jim Lampley, Maura Ronaldo, Larry Merchant, Steve Farford, Al Bernstein, Julia Louis Dreyfus, Claire Danes, mm-hmm. Damian Lewis, Mandy Patinkin, Liev Schrieber, John Voigt, okay, Liev Schrieber, The Rock, <laughs> Drogon. Right. But finally, finally now, we've really, I think, found the level of coworker and colleague that we're both proud to be able to look forward to maybe spending some time with around the old water cooler. We've got ourselves quite the colleague now, wouldn't you say?
2: Yes, yes. I know who you're talking about. Look, this is uh, what it's all been leading to. This is why I've persevered in this business for 20 plus years in anticipation of the day when Brian Cranston and I. Our peers, co-workers, <laughs> equals, really, uh, virtual office mates, you might say. Right. Right. Uh, Your Honor premiered on Showtime Sunday night. So he works for Showtime. I work for Showtime. You work for Showtime. We all work for Showtime. So Brian, Bry, can I call you Bry? Bry, welcome to the team. Call me whenever. We'll talk shop.
1: It is another BC, though, that we have to deal with. <laughs> True.
2: I, yeah, I can't call Brian Cranston BC. I, I'll, right. I'll, yeah, I, I I assume
1: he's fine with Brian. We'll go with Bry. I think I, personally, I just think that the email chain is going to be so much better with him than with Drogon. Boy, that was
2: <laughs> that was
1: rough. Yeah,
2: it did not. It was a lot of emojis and stuff coming from him, <laughs> but mostly fire related. But anyway, right, right. Well, so Kieran, now that Brian Cranston is a coworker. We're surely going to have him on the podcast soon. It's going to happen. And uh, you're going to have to sit that interview out if you haven't watched Breaking Bad. So get binging, okay?
1: All right. We'll see. We shall see. Um, I will tell you this. Before we get to like, looking at any of that, we have a positively loaded show of our own for everyone this week uh we have our thoughts to give on the spence garcia pay-per-view we have a showtime triple header to preview and make our predictions on we're also going to look ahead to anthony joshua against kubrat pulev uh we'll cover all sorts of breaking news um including the fairly staggering tyson jones pay-per-view figures uh we will talk a little bit about the hector camacho documentary that premiered on showtime this past friday night so plenty to look ahead to in this pack show but we are going to start with a bang and this week's very special guest uh, he is of course most famous for hosting a pair of live streams with me during the build-up to Mayweather Pacquiao but he also has a lesser degree of fame for his play-by-play duties with WWE and Bellator and of course as the lead boxing commentator for Showtime I refer of course to the one the only Mr. Moro Ronaldo. Moro, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast my friend
0: uh, what is your Venmo account? The deposit will be made very <laughs> soon, Kieran. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure, my friend. It really is. Thank you, guys.
2: <laughs> so, as Kieran mentioned, uh, Mauro, your, your primary boxing gig is the one as the blow-by-blow man for Showtime. Uh, but you had an opportunity to do a non-Showtime card a week ago featuring a legend of the sport who I know means a lot to you, Mike Tyson. I presume you had given up hope on ever calling a Tyson fight, but... Here you were, working Tyson versus Roy Jones. Where does this rank among the most surreal nights of your career, which as a boxing, wrestling, and MMA broadcaster has surely featured plenty of surreal nights?
0: Uh, it, we put the real in surreal, and with all due respect to everything I've done, and I've been blessed to be ringside and cageside for uh, many seminal moments in combat sports, it was by far uh, a bucket list event. And before I go any further, I have to... Uh, send my best wishes to my Hall of Fame broadcast partner, Al Bernstein, who was supposed to be doing the show, unfortunately fell ill and and gave my name. And this just shows you who Al Bernstein is, gave my name to the promoters. And in fact, guys, we didn't make the deal until two days prior to the event. And wow. I think you guys know that I, I'm a prep junkie. I yep. I try to learn as maybe half as much or a quarter of as much as uh, you guys do about boxing. But <laughs> prep is everything to me. So I went in a little hype, a little manic, and then to find out that I'd be working with none other than Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, of course, a UFC middleweight champion, Israel Asanya, and then, you know, one of my all-time favorite rappers going back to my club and radio DJ days in my native Canada, Snoop Dogg, and oh, did I mention Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr. in an exhibition? So yeah, guys, it, it really uh, takes the cake and and again, I I can't believe I was a part of last week's uh, event, and I'm very grateful uh, for the overwhelming uh, positive feedback that all of us received. I think uh, entertainment was the order of the night, and with everything going on in the world, I, I think we released the pressure valve just a teensy-eensy mm-hmm. bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, what the, I mean, I, I share with you. Obviously, best wishes for Al, who who is recovering quite well. He said, and uh, as things turned out, it's perhaps best as well. I'm not sure that Al knows what a Snoop Dogg is. Bless his
0: heart. We all love Al. <laughs> hey, Al is Al is
1: a, a, a he's a, a Renaissance man. He's an amazing
0: crooner. And, and uh, he, he and I don't go back and forth with pop culture, but he's right. He always leaves the hip hop references to me. So <laughs> in that case, you might be right.
1: <laughs> but one thing I'm curious about with that broadcast, you know, like when you're working with a season broadcast team, you go in there, all of you knowing that there are certain ebbs and flows, a place to speak, a place to come pull back. When you're with someone like Snoop, who's obviously brilliant on the mic and had a lot of the highlight lines of the night, but he doesn't have that sort of sensibility necessarily. And, and I'm curious how much more difficult or different it is for you to work with somebody like that?
0: Great question, Kieran. And maybe again, it speaks to the fact that I've been doing this since I came out of my mama's womb and and always practicing uh, interviews and working with so many different people over the years. When you get a guy like Snoop Dogg and you know what he does for a living and who he is, I let him go. I mean, he was incredible. And, yeah. and all I try to do there is tee him up. I'm, I'm yeah. not even interested in, in trying to uh, win him by any means. He's the superstar. He's the very special guest. And if you guys saw the, the, uh, the feedback afterwards, it, Snoop Dogg made us go viral. I mean, Tyson yeah. and Jones did their thing, but I, I really just let him go. And, and thankfully we got, you know, two of my all time favorite memories in broadcasting. unfortunately, at the expense of Nate Robinson, who could have been seriously hurt in his celebrity match with Jake Paul. But when you see Snoop Dogg break out into a hymn, I mean, where else are you going to hear that in a boxing show? And then of course, stealing the night with uh, Tyson and Jones saying it looked like two uncles fighting at a barbecue. So uh, God bless Snoop Dogg. And and really Kieran, I, I, I tend to be good at working with, with people. I'm always Hmm. trying to share, the space and I know who's who and what their roles are supposed to be. And even Israel Adesanya, the the UFC champion, had never done broadcasting before. Uh, He was, he was over the moon and and actually thanked me afterwards as well. But again, these guys are natural on the microphone and, and even good old Sugar Ray Leonard, who, uh, again, one of my heroes, uh, he picked his spots, you know, he used that jab and uh, (laughs) just did what he was supposed to do.
1: Oh man, you carried me for four and a half hours in the Mayweather. Dance,
0: <laughs> man, that was so much fun. Like I say, we have to host a telethon together <laughs> for a good cause.
2: If if I check all the footage on that, is there at one point uh, where a delirious Kieran starts uh, singing some Snoop Dogg lyrics or something in there? <laughs>
0: hey, we did we did get to interview Lil Kim. Yep. So uh, right. there was a little hip hop uh, royalty yep. in the mix. But uh, wow, what a what a day, and again. Uh, a testament I think here to not only uh, our love for what we do but the fact that you know we we have to vamp as they yep. say and from what I heard I mean again who wants to do that you know four and a half hours at a at a workup but uh, from people who I respect they they respected our work so I really uh, I really appreciated working with you and I'm glad we're doing this.
1: Likewise.
2: So another question about the broadcasting you've been doing here in 2020, Mauro, you come across as a broadcaster who feeds off the roar of the crowd, at least in big moments. Has there been any adjustment you've had to make to calling fights without a crowd? And has it been a challenge at any point to keep your energy up doing these fights in, in the bubbles?
0: I went uh, to Japan over 30 times uh, for the Pride Fighting Championships, the iconic MMA uh, promotion in the mid-aughts. They would sell out 35, 40,000 people. But for the most part, the crowd was incredibly quiet because wow. they were not only re- vested in what was happening, but uh, really, I guess that's their way of respecting. And then it made their reactions that much more impactful. But to answer your question, sir, I, I-, I believe I start I try to temper things. I mean, even here, you guys know I get amped up. I'm trying to to keep it down. But my best friend said, you know what, Morrow, you're a, at a five. Most of us are at a three. Um, I, I begin the broadcast trying to do that. But again, guys, I, I don't manufacture my hype. I know we all have a, a bunch of haters, and I know I'm, I'm polarizing in, in my style. But I don't manufacture my enthusiasm. So I, I don't think it does. But I, I do try to be cognizant of certain spots where, you know, just, just temper it a bit.
1: Mm.
0: Gotcha. Mm.
1: Um, I sort of, sort of related somewhat to the, to that last question about, you know, broadcasting in the bubble and to go back to that earlier point about how, you know, you're used to feeding off each other, especially when you get used to each other as a team. And there, you know, I know you give each other very subtle body language signals normally when you're sitting ringside as to when to step in and when to not do, you're now spaced apart. And I'm wondering how difficult that is for you, especially as you're the traffic controller. Um, and, and I wonder if it's a little difficult when you can't see each other so well to, to do that and, and whether that presents, presents an extra
0: challenge. You guys are good at this. <laughs> we, we've been, we've been doing the really, podcasting
2: thing long enough. I hope we're at least half decent by really now. You guys are really
0: good at this. Uh, Kieran, uh, to answer your question, yes, um, but again, as a testament to a company that I've been with longer than any other entity in my career. And there's a reason for that. Showtime championship boxing, Showtime sports, Showtime period. Uh, we really are a family. And as you guys know, in this media business, egos and we're all looking for the, the next break. We all want the big jobs and we'll we'll do whatever it takes according to many uh, to, 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 you know, it's cutthroat. We respect each other. We, uh, uh, Al and I, Al actually told me, and this meant a lot to me, that I, he's, I'm now his longest tenured partner as a oh, boxing wow. broadcaster. So that meant a lot. And, and again, just to, to I know I ramble. Um, yes, it's hard, but I don't know what it is. Al and I have a synergy and, and thanks to the setup, we are socially distanced, but Al and, and uh, Abner Matas, who, you know, what, showing a lot of potential yep. in a very high pressure situation coming in of uh, replacing, uh, you know, I think one of the better, analyst that the sport has seen recently in, in my paisano paulie Malinagi, but thankfully i have a guy like steve farhood who i have to put uh over the biggest uh, the biggest planets the moon whatever you want to say <laughs> the most selfless gracious human being and a walking encyclopedia of boxing he is really uh instrumental in in helping that with with questions with cues uh so we're all working together to make it work. Al and I, you know, I try to use the body language sometimes to, <laughs> to get them. And, and it, it is, it is, a, it is hard, but mm. um, I think the more reps we get, the, the better we'll be. Mm.
2: All right. L- let me ask you a question uh, that has nothing to do with boxing or broadcasting. A, a very serious question. Um, 2020 has been tough on almost everyone. The documentary you made with Showtime about being bipolar was, Tremendous, Really eye-opening, cool. incredibly raw and, and affecting. And I can't help but wonder what impact the pandemic and social distancing and quarantining have had on your mental health. So I'm just curious, how challenging has this all been
0: for you? I'm going to surprise you with my answer. I have gone through a lot of therapy. I was uh, actually at one of my all-time lows, uh, When is it, a year and a half ago. I had come off a serious car accident in December that triggered all of my anxiety and and sent me into a spiral with my uh, bipolar disorder. Uh, Mm -hmm. Thankfully, everyone uh, supported me, but they said, you know, something's wrong here. And it took uh, one of my oldest friends, Keith Crawford up in Canada. He phoned me uh, a year and a half ago in July. And through the phone call, he phoned the police and he said, Mm -hmm. you got to do a wellness check on my friend and the police and a nurse showed up and I was really angry. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? What are you, what are you doing? Like coming in my house. And, and they said, sir, someone who cares about you wanted to make sure you're okay. And they could tell I wasn't, uh, they took me to UCLA hospital. I spent two weeks in the psychiatric ward there and was immediately put into intense therapy for the first time in my life at, at Camden. Uh, I went five days a week. I did more. Uh, it was like being in school, being in college. So, the reason I bring this up, I, I was in a good place at, at the beginning of this year. Mm-hmm. And when the pandemic hit, I almost felt this eerie calm that everyone else now on the planet knows mm-hmm. what it's like for those of us who are anxious, who battle. Mm-hmm. To be honest, when the streets were empty, I, I, I was at peace. Mm. But I also know uh, what it's meant for other people. And and no matter what I go through uh, in times like this or any crisis, I really throw myself into helping others. So I, I realize what we're dealing with. I know how blessed we all are to still be getting a, a paycheck. and I can't stress enough how much I appreciate uh, even WWE, which I left recently, but but Showtime, especially uh, keeping us employed, trying to trying to you know the show must go on as they say, despite what is the worst time of our life. and and so I, I want to do more. I want to do more and more and more. And I'm, I'm, I'm being asked to the California state athletic commission recently approached me about doing some stuff for them because unfortunately suicides have impacted uh, their people. Uh, I get still feedback from the documentary. So for the rest of my life uh, I appreciate that I can make a living in broadcasting, but, but I want to go down as a mental advocate on my, you know, tombstone uh, first and foremost. So it has been hard, but for me, I don't know why, but I, I, I feel like this is where I'm needed most, and it's actually helped my mental health because of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it It
1: does. does. It Hmm. does. I want to share something with you more that I don't think I've shared with you before is that I've sort of hinted at it on this podcast is that throughout my adult life, I have struggled with crippling depression and I've had bouts come and go. And, and, you know, you know what it's like where it's, you, you might seem to be functioning perfectly well, but you know that underneath, underneath you're not. And I'm also in a close relationship with somebody who even as we speak is, curled up on my futon downstairs on like day three of an Ativan-induced fog, you know? Um, Mental health issues, I think, are more widespread than people uh, necessarily acknowledge, or perhaps people acknowledge it more now over the last eight months. So first of all, I want to really thank you for what you have done on this. And, and just having somebody out there acknowledging it and bringing it to people's attention is a collective burden lifted off the shoulders of all of us. So I want to thank you for that. Um, and And also I wanted to ask you, although it feels like you've answered that to some extent, whether going into the documentary, you know, one of the things that's often associated with a lot of these mental health issues is we are often all struck with crippling insecurities and self-doubt. And I wonder how anxious at times it made you going into making this documentary and exposing
0: yourself like this? I was blessed to have my best friend uh, make the documentary. And in fact, uh, 14 years ago, when I moved to Toronto to work for the Fight Network, I met a 22-year-old kid. He's 15 years younger than me, but we really connected uh, he'd been a fan of pride he was a Muay Thai fighter so he knew of who i was and kind of I guess not starstruck but like holy moly morals working with us at the fight network and he and i just developed an instant bond he lived close to me and he would he was familiar with my work but he would you know we'd get together almost every day afterwards just shoot the breeze about the day and just get to know each other better and he realized very early on that you know many layers to to yours truly and not all of them good and at first he was scared. He's like, wow, are you, you know, the intensity of my mania, the, the crippling uh, depression. But I'll tell you, man, this kid uh, who's now, uh, you know, in his mid thirties, but he said, Morrow, would you mind? I mean, you're so open with me. And I, I just wonder, can, would you mind me fa- capturing this? Like, would you mind? I don't know what it will be. I don't know what it is, but you've often said you want to do more. You want to show what mental illness and bipolar disorder, living with it is. It wasn't until he had gone to my family. He, he had, this guy put so much money into this thing. And again, it's just incredible, the commitment of one person. And again, Showtime put the bells and whistles on it and Brian Daly and, and uh, Malcolm Media, everyone, every Stephen Espinoza. The support I got from Showtime was incredible. But it wasn't until uh, Harris Usanovic, my best friend, went to visit my family home and was told that there was a treasure trove of VHS tapes under my bed that really oof, documented everything I'd done since I was 16, and he immediately went, "Holy shit, I got a documentary!" <laughs> so he started putting it together, and I can't thank him enough. But I wasn't anxious; in fact, I wanted it to be even more unflinching. Uh, Stephen yeah. Espinoza had to pull the, the reins. I, I said there has never been anyone. People talk about it. Thankfully, uh, Hollywood celebrities have been more open with their mental health. No one, I, I. no one. There have been incredible uh, movies and, and other documentaries. But for me, I said, I have to really show what mental illness is and, and let people know that for me, the mixed states where already now I know I'm amped up talking to you guys and I, and it, I can't help it. It is who I am. and And so I wasn't anxious. I wanted to share it. Maybe there's even a little pride and not necessarily hubris, but I wanted people to know, hey, guess what? I've conquered everything. I've made. I've achieved my dreams and then some. And oh yeah, I've been dealing with this just like so many of you. And the feedback, and even what you just said now, Kieran, uh, really touches me. I'm going to do more. I'm I'm the stigma smasher, and I have no fear. I have no shame. I have no. uh, I'm not making any excuses for anyone. And and if you can't figure that out, then then you know you suffer from stigma. That's just what it is. If if you really truly care about humanity, you got to take care of the tool between your yeah. ears first and foremost the chilling new original docuseries on paramount plus why did he kill his family the answer lies uh. across the ocean and a woman named Sylvie. to the can model where desire leads to deception i ended up spending 12 and 15 thousand dollars a day it was addictive I can't get you out. and obsession leads to murder who did this to your family can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control All Desire now streaming on Paramount Plus.
1: Yeah, 100%. Well, wow.
2: well we we appreciate your your candor in the documentary and uh, and and here on the podcast as well. Uh Thank but but enough about you, Mora. Let's get back to boxing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: enough,
1: about,
2: enough about you. Let's talk about me. <laughs> well, we're not going to talk about me necessarily, but, uh, but let's talk about yeah, some hey, fighters.
0: <laughs> you should, my man. All kidding aside, the uh, the, the chemistry and, and just what you guys have done to the sport is, is like I say, uh, very commendable. But yeah, let's talk about <laughs> boxing.
2: Let's do it. Uh, so I want to talk about Clarissa Shield. She made big news this week by signing a contract to compete in MMA You've long covered both sports. How hard do you expect it to be for her to succeed in MMA? Is this maybe something where she should just face one or two soft opponents to kind of get some mainstream attention and raise her profile, but otherwise stick with boxing?
0: If the PFL is is smart and they're doing some interesting things, but I I still think uh, obviously UFC has fantastic matchmaking, but I always thought, and maybe I'm biased because I've worked for him for so long. Scott Coker with strike force and now Bellator MMA has, has been brilliant. I think in, in, in those crossover athletes and the matchmaking and sure, you can tell what the showcase fights are, but man, oh man, they're more endemic to boxing these days than to MMA. So for right. Clarissa Shields, um, very much like anyone who is crossing over uh, or trying a different sport. I, I always used to think, man, it's very hard. You hear these people say I'm going to conquer boxing, MMA, kickboxing. It's hard enough to do one, uh, for Clarissa Shields, and because of her size, it's going to be very difficult. They, there, I mean, when when Chris Cyborg was dominating the sport at 145, it was very difficult to find uh, quality opposition. A lot of the women, just because of you know physics and 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 the way we are, the way uh, evolution made us, uh, they're very you know much smaller. I think Clarissa Shields is going to bring some advertising to the PFL. I still think she has a lot to do in boxing. I know her grievances with pay and 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 You know what she has said about sexism i i believe that uh there is opportunity for us to do what we did in mma with the women and and claressa shields yeah i i wouldn't i'd face a striker right you don't want to put her in there with a wrestler and a a brazilian jiu-jitsu specialist but even for her there's no way that she's going to learn everything uh before her debut and like mma at its genesis not to say they were one-trick ponies, but everyone had their strengths. She has to work to her strengths. And, and, you know, God bless her. I've been a huge Claressa Shields fan. And and I just love... The her story and what she's mm-hmm. had to overcome and what she represents. So you go, girl. That's what I can say <laughs> about the
1: rest of the Yeah. yeah. Um, so since Eric and I, you mentioned, obviously, you've been with showtime many years now. Eric and I came aboard two years ago. And, and and in that time, Network hasn't quite had all the big fights that we hoped it would. You know, PBC took quite a few to Fox in 2019. And then, well, 2020, all you need to say about 2020 is 2020. So... Yeah. um what is your level of optimism like regarding Showtime's boxing in 2021?
0: A little birdie told me that I should be very optimistic because of uh, scheduling and scheduling yeah. that is already beginning. And and so like we have seen, and I, it is incredibly, you know, Stephen Espinosa calls me the Forrest Gump of broadcasting, <laughs> and he may be onto something there. Uh, when I, when Strikeforce ended on Showtime in 2012, when it was sold to the UFC, I thought, well, there you go. I, I've never had long tenures with businesses. I've been very grateful to work with so many companies and stay gainfully employed. But the tenure of Showtime was the longest at five years. And I thought it was over. And again, speaking to these people I work with, David Dinkins Jr., Stephen Espinosa, Gordon Hall, they said, you know what? There's a transition happening in their boxing broadcasting. Gus Johnson, of course, one of the preeminent sports casters in in the, uh, the football and basketball world was uh, beginning to you know, move on. They said, hey, let's take a chance on Morrow. Al Bernstein flew across the country, gave up his time. I'm sure, I hope he was remunerated, but he still gave up his time to do an uh, audition with me at Brooklyn Boxing, where I first met Steve Farhood. Brian Custer was doing a play-by-play, and, and Al and I hit it off right away. Gordon Hall was there, and they said, yeah, let's hire this guy. My tenure began with Steven Espinosa's first year. Months after that, I was doing Floyd Mayweather versus Robert Guerrero as Mayweather began his six-fight contract that changed the game for Showtime. Uh, we've had our ebbs and flows. It's just the nature of the biz. I'm just grateful. Again, we are trying. We, I mean, the pay-per-view with Gervonta Davis and Leo Santa Cruz was fantastic if you want action was were the matchups competitive not necessarily but they delivered the action uh i believe the charlo brothers are are moving up and and yeah covid's impacted all of us and we haven't had the biggest names because like you say we've had danny garcia and errol spence in their pay-per-view on on fox and and i know about sharing the wealth but i'm i'm biased i'm a competitor i want all the big fights on showtime
2: Well, the, the, I hadn't heard that, uh, that Forrest Gump uh, nickname, but it is a, uh, first, first of all, I'll say, I'll hope, I'll hope you've never been uh, shot in the buttocks. Uh, <laughs>
0: hey, uh, I may have taken a few shots in the buttocks, but that's for another day. That's for another day. That's a totally yeah. different podcast. Right.
2: <laughs>
0: um, but but the, the
2: last question that I want to ask you, Moro, actually plays perfectly into that Forrest Gump nickname. Uh, nice. Let's say you can go back in history and call any boxing match that you didn't actually call? Maybe it's something from when you were a kid. Maybe it's something from before you were even born. Maybe it's something from recent years, but you weren't the blow-by-blow man. What is the dream fight from the past for you to get the opportunity to call?
0: Can I give you three? Mm. Sure. Quick ones? I'll I'll take three, yeah. Uh, Rumble in the Jungle. Muhammad Ali, George Foreman. Mm -hmm. Um, Diego Corrales... And Castillo Mm -hmm. in their first fight, which was one of the probably the greatest fight I've ever seen. And any of the Mickey Ward, Arturo Gatti fights would would do me would would, you know, make my life complete, I guess. So, yeah, (laughs) I mean, there's so many, obviously, but those three uh, represent what I love about the sport.
2: Yeah, those are those are good choices. And that this gives Kieran and, and I an opportunity to brag and to note that I I was lucky enough to be at all three Gaddy Ward fights, not calling them, but I was at them. And Kieran was at Corrales Castillo. So yep. Yep. I, ne- I neither of to... us were in Zaire.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I have to give a tip of the hat to the best to ever do it. Jim Lampley. Uh, during Gotti Ward when he said we we knew it would be fight of the year little did we know it would be fight of the century yeah. still gives me goosebumps yeah.
1: yeah yeah all right my final question for you uh, as we talked about you've called pro wrestling you've called mma you called boxing other kick than boxing. they are boxing. and kickboxing
0: almost <laughs> um, down the list but anyway sorry sir go ahead so
1: <laughs> other than that you know they're they're all combat sports they seem to have you know little in common so i'm curious about whether there is a difference in the way that you approach them. When you're in that place where, I know as we talked about, the first thing you do is, is you feast on preparation and you get everything ready, whatever it is. But as you're getting yourself in the zone, is, are your priorities or your focus or your things you want to you emphasize, are they a little bit different with each one or is there more similarity between, say, WWE and Showtime Championship Boxing than people might appreciate?
0: I think people who went to college for communications broadcasting, I would say they'd probably say yes. I've never went, I started my career at 16 in pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to be an entertainer and a storyteller, a, a, a stand up comic, even maybe even some acting over the, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I'm a personality. And whether you like me or not, that's it. So when you ask me that question, I say no, because I do the prep for everything. I know that I'm a storyteller. I got the experts, right. I got the analysts. I want to add entertainment. I know some people wish I'd shut the hell up and and just call the shots. That's boring to me. That is seriously boring to me. So I, I don't I, I don't want to be ham-fisted. I I, I don't want to. I mean, yeah, the dad jokes for some people or I make them cringe. You know what, man? I've got a very uh, wide variety of interests and, and I want to reach the person who's forced to sit there, the wife or, or the husband to watch the fight, the kids. I know that boxing has a huge African-American and Latino demographic. I want to make sure without, uh, I culturally appreciate. I never want to culturally appropriate. So for me, my man, I'm, I'm a gun for hire. I want to bring the best. I think I proved that last Saturday. That really was mm-hmm. the epitome of what I'm all about. Um, I, I was incredibly blessed to be a part of that. And so, uh, no, sir. I like adding the lyrics to the many different songs, many different genres, as it were. And I'm truly blessed and grateful for the opportunities.
1: And we're very grateful to have had you on the podcast, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I love you. I'm proud to call you my friend. Stay well, stay safe. And hopefully in 2021, we'll actually get to see each other again.
0: (laughs) Yes, and Kieran and Eric, thank you guys very much and really appreciate what you guys do for the sport and for showtime.
2: Thanks Thanks so much,
1: Mara.
0: Bless you guys. Mask up and stay safe, homies. All right, that was pretty incredible. Um,
1: yeah, I feel I feel like I need to light a cigarette after that. That, <laughs> was, that was that was a very great. And thank you so much, tomorrow. He's a he's a good friend and a good person. And holy crap, what a guest! That was fantastic. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's uh, get to the in-ring action. Uh, and there's really only one fight from this past weekend that's worth dissecting in depth. Uh, on Saturday, in front of about sixteen thousand. Somewhat socially distanced fans at AT AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, Errol Spence Jr., in his first fight back after his 2019 car accident, uh, successfully defended his welterweight belts and raised his record to a perfect 27-0 with 21 knockouts with a unanimous decision win over Danny Garcia. Scores were 116-112 twice and 117-111, which is how I had it. Uh, I gave Danny Garcia rounds 5 and 7 and with less conviction round 10. Um, The fight was competitive. Much of it was for at Garcia's pace, but Spence was boxing very well behind that southpaw jab of his, closing Garcia's left eye and piling up the points uh, until it was clear that Garcia needed to do something dramatic in the championship rounds, and he didn't. Uh, Look, I'm no great genius, but when we were looking at the keys to the fight last week, Did say it was going to be a case of Spence's southpaw jab against Garcia's left hook. And if Garcia's hook was landing effectively, we had a fight. And if Spence's jab was dominating, we didn't. And Mm -hmm. it was the latter that turned out to be the case. Uh, Boy, that jab may well be one of the best in boxing right now, I think. But uh, it would be wrong to say that that's all Spence had going in his favor. He boxed from the outside. He fought on the inside. He turned Garcia. He opened up when he had to. Defended well. to the body when he wanted to. Mm -hmm. Um, Garcia didn't well. He just came up against someone who who didn't submit to his will and just didn't give him the time or space to return fire the way he likes to. Um, You know, one question a lot of people had was answered, and we sort of touched on it at the beginning of this. Errol Spence Jr. is just fine after that frightening car accident. Um, Why was Spence able to beat Garcia? Not just beat Garcia, Eric, but more convincingly than anyone else has. Are you disappointed at all in what Garcia brought And Overall, what did you think about the fight? Did it live up to expectations?
2: Uh, Overall... Yeah, this was the good, solid fight I was expecting. It was maybe about one round wider than I predicted. Uh, Like you, I scored at 117, 111, but there were two rounds I gave Spence that I struggled with, Uh, so it could have been a little closer, although then again, all three rounds I gave to Garcia were very close too. Um, But this was more or less a fight going according to script and neither exceeding nor falling short of expectations. It depends what you're looking for. You want knockdowns and drama and guys getting visibly hurt, then this could be viewed as a slight disappointment. But in terms of the level of craft on display here, this was just A-level stuff from both sides. I really enjoyed watching it. It was a cleaner style matchup than Garcia's fights against Porter mm. or Thurman. You know, uh, neither Spence nor Garcia ever really get sloppy. They're, they're landing right. clean, they're being defensively responsible. They're jabbing, they're countering, they're hardly ever tying up. I think I can recall like one point in the fight off the top of my head where they were really uh one one was holding the other, and that's about it. Um just a solid fight. But Garcia needed to do more, and he didn't, and to an extent, he couldn't. You know, it's it's just not in him. Uh yep. he had solid rounds in in nine and ten. Those were two of the three that I gave to him. Uh but you still still sensed he needed a frantic rally in 11 and 12, and he's just not the frantic rally type. Uh, Breadman said, this is the fight that determines if he's a Hall of Famer, and I agree with that. And so it seems Danny isn't a Hall of Famer. He's in that Hall of very good. um, You know, like if Tim Bradley is the modern dividing line of, yeah, he's almost certainly getting in, but it won't be easy. He might have to wait for a weak ballot year to get in. Uh, I think Danny Garcia's boxing career is a half notch below Tim Bradley's. Um, yeah. But that's enough about Garcia. The focus should be Spence. And you asked why he was able to become the first to beat Garcia without any dispute from anyone over who deserved to win the fight. It starts with that jab that, that you highlighted. Uh, between this and Joyce Dubois the week before, <laughs> we're really seeing the value of a good, busy jab. In this case, a southpaw jab. Uh, it didn't damage Garcia's eye as much as Joyce's did Dubois's eye, but it did damage just the same. Um, more so than Thurman or Porter, Spence doesn't give you clear openings. That was a, a key for him here. He's really technically sound. He's not very creative in the ring. Like, he's not a Vasily Lomachenko, where he might pull out some new move you've never seen before. Spence is kind of predictable. It's mostly one-twos, not a lot of hooks. It's staying at his range. It's never opening up and going crazy. And that all served him well against Garcia, who needs to counterpunch, needs to catch you with that shot you don't see. He landed a few good ones, but never anything Spence didn't see coming. Um, and also, a, a key was just that Spence was in great shape. Uh, the, the layoff didn't hurt him at all. He generally got stronger as the fight went on. Yeah. He looks like a guy who would have done just fine in the 15-round era. Yeah. Um, so I posted a poll on Twitter just after the fight ended. Uh, combining my loves of boxing and betting, uh, I set my own odds for a Spence-Terrence Crawford fight, which may or may not ever happen. Uh, I made Crawford a minus 180 favorite. You bet $180 to win $100. Uh, and Spence, a plus 140 underdog, you bet $100 to win 140 and the results suggest I set a line that the sports books would be happy with because, given those odds, at last check, 48.5% said they'd bet the Crawford side and 51.5% said they'd bet the Spence side. You've been a Crawford over Spence guy all along. Did you see anything Saturday night to make you hesitate? And in general, what does this win over Garcia do to elevate Errol Spence? Among other things, does it elevate his bargaining power? And make his pursuit of a 60-40 split in a Crawford
1: fight more tenable. So to take that latter part first, I don't think there's any question that Spence has the bargaining power here. I mean, especially lately, even Crawford's own promoter has been throwing him under the bus (laughs) and saying he's a money sink. So, look, I've covered several Terrence Crawford bouts in Omaha. And he can draw the crowds there. And the atmosphere there is like few I've ever experienced. But it's Omaha. um spence has something similar in his hometown but his hometown is dallas um and and spence can draw away from there as well so Mm -hmm. the reality is as much as i love terence crawford uh errol spence holds if not all the cards then an awful lot of them and and i think there's also a sense now that um it's incumbent on crawford to find a way to make this fight rather than it being incumbent upon on spence there's the sense that It's gotten to a point where Crawford, for all his skills, is the one who needs to prove himself uh, against these top level opponents more than Spence. That Spence is the one who's been beating the top guys while Crawford is spinning his wheels a little bit. I I think I I did a little dive back just to remind myself what they've been up to over the last few years to see just how true that is. And I think that that's a little bit overplayed. Um, If you have a look at the record, in May 2017, they fought a week apart. Crawford on the 20th against felix diaz spence one week later against Kell and since then spence has gone five and against lamont peterson carlos ocampo who's the one kind of one of these things is not like the other in that <laughs> right. in that sequence mikey garcia sean porter and danny garcia really solid sequence um crawford has been fractionally busier gone six and oh against julius and dungo then unbeaten but he's since been flattened by regis progre <sighs> Jeff Horn. Oof. Uh Jose Benavides, uh which I think'll stand the test of time is a solid yeah. if not necessarily spectacular win. Um the remnants of Amir Khan, um Kavalowskis who I think is similar can say a similar thing as about the, the Benavides win. Uh and and what was left of brooke So Crawford's not facing solely warmed up husks although Khan and by the time he faced him Brook weren't much better than that. Um, He's been facing solid, good fighters, but not those A-list kind of guys. So it's better, I think. It's not quite the mismatch in terms of quality of opposition over the last few years. Some people have you believe, but nonetheless, you know, that perception is there. Spence has been not only doing it against A-list kind of guys. He's been doing it on pay-per-view a, few, a couple of times now, Um you know, I, th- I think the one thing that changes potentially this perception of, you know, who holds the cards, who has the bargaining power is if Crawford gets the Manny Pacquiao first. Mm-hmm. Um, as I've been saying for years, I just can't imagine why Pacquiao would have that happen. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago that there's been talk supposedly that the fight came very close to happening in the Middle East. I don't know if that happens. But. Um, but other than that, yes, uh, I think Spence does does hold the cards there. As for the in the ring, what I do like about both men is that is they are adaptable. But I also really do think that you made a very good point there in that Spence is adaptable within his bubble of what he does, right. uh, and what he sort of does is he forces his opponent to fight the way he wants them to. Crawford adapts somewhat more in that he figures out what his opponent is doing. He adapts, and I don't just mean in changing stances, but he figures out what the opponent is doing, neutralizes that. Spence figures out what his opponent is doing and neutralizes it, and then keeps going, neutralizing it. Crawford figures what his opponent is doing, neutralizes it, and then looks to fuck him up. Crawford's a meaner, fighter in the ring I think than Spence is Spence is very happy to just box his way to a good decision Crawford likes to mess up and embarrass and dominate his opponent down the stretch and I think that's a little bit of a difference I do think Crawford is more adaptable I do think he's more versatile but you know I do think he's a better finisher but with every outing that Spence faces these kind of good solid guys top level guys on a big stage and shows that he can do it and with every day that Terence Crawford gets that bit older. He's 33 now, and he'll be 34, pushing 35 by the time they face each other, most probably. I think there's a gap, but that gap is narrowing constantly. Um, Spence is showing time after time after time that he's a really, really top-level fighter.
2: Yeah, th- this is one where the marination to this point has probably done it good there will become yeah. a, there will reach a point of over marination and of course if it never happens that's a, just a huge disappointment but the fight is hotter now and seems closer to tougher to call now than yeah. was the case a year ago
1: agreed um we also still have a, quite a lot to get up to on the show This week, but we should round up some of the other boxing results in one quick burst here. Let's stay with Spence Garcia and let's look at the undercard Uh, junior middleweight Sebastian, the towering Inferno Fandora. Blew out late replacement Habib Ahmed in two rounds. Welterweight Josecito Lopez stopped Francisco Chia Santana in round 10. Santana's corner, and referee Neil Young got a lot of negative feedback for letting that fight go on as long as they did. Uh, And by the way, Eduardo Ramirez stopped Miguel Flores in five fairly one-sided rounds. Uh, At Wembley Arena in London on Friday, Billy Joe Saunders remained unbeaten with a lopsided unanimous decision over 38-year-old Martin Murray. And on Thursday, on the 2nd... Second Ring City USA card, super welterweight Brandon Adams. Stop late sub, uh, Sunny Duverson in two rounds outside the Wild Card boxing club in Los Angeles. Uh, any notable fights or performances or thoughts there on among all of that?
2: The guy who stands out is Fundora. G- gotta love that guy. Seriously. We watch, I don't know, 400 or so fights a year. Uh, you watch that many fights and fighters and a lot of them blur together. Uh, like, like I forget who an Eduardo Ramirez is until the fight starts, and they mention his most recent fight, and I say, oh, yeah, that guy. Right. No such problem with Fundora. <laughs> uh, you remember him. He's unique. He stands out. Uh, his opponent was totally overmatched here, but Fundora did all you could ask him to do, which is to make anyone who saw this come away saying... The next time that skinny mf fights, I want to be watching. (laughs) Um, The other winners all looked good, too. Uh, Saunders looked sharp against what's left of Murray, which isn't much. Brandon Adams took care of business. Ramirez is one of those guys who's maybe a little better than his record suggests. Uh, But the fight worth commenting on is Lopez Santana. You know I'm a sadist, Kieran. Uh, I, I like having a Steve Smoger in the ring for a big fight and letting the fight reach a clear conclusion. The last round or so of this fight was totally unnecessary. You know, if it's a close fight, if it's like a 5-4 fight or even a 6-3 fight entering the 10th and a guy is as badly wobbled as Santana was going to his corner, you give him that minute to recover and and see what he can do. This was a 9-0 fight. Uh, Mm. Referee Young should have stopped it really after the knockdown in the 9th when Santana got up wobbly, but at least stop it in the corner between rounds. This was just a bad job by the ref and the corner in a fight that wasn't remotely competitive and all Santana had going for him was his toughness. Um, Mm. Fun first round though. Uh, For anyone who missed this fight, watch the first round, then turn it off. No need to watch the rest.
1: Okay. Yeah. Referee Neil Young not showing a heart of gold. <laughs>
2: well done. Yes. There there were Neil Young references on the broadcast the uh, singer I saw on Twitter. Everyone was trying to make just the right reference. I think uh, I think you nailed it there. Well done. <laughs> well, <thank you. laughs> uh, so those were all of this past weekend's fights and a busy December rolls on with another strong weekend of action, including a triple header on Showtime. On Saturday, December 12th, beginning at 9 p.m. Eastern, live from the Mohegan Sun bubble. Solid mix of veterans and up-and-comers on this card. And in the main event, it's a clash of promising 130-pounders with a combined record of 30 wins and one loss. It's Brooklyn's Chris Colbert, 14-0 with just 5 KOs. Against Panama's Jaime Arbelada, 16-1, 13 KOs has won six straight, including a tight win on Showtime over Jason Velez in Allentown in February, making Arboleda one of the very few boxers who will compete twice on Showtime this year. Both of these fighters contracted and recovered from COVID earlier this year. Colbert got it in February. Arboleda got it in March. There are a lot of talented young fighters at or around 130 pounds. So, Kieran, where do Colbert and Arboleda fit in? And what did we learn about Arboleda in that squeaker over Velez or about Colbert when he stepped up and beat Jezreel Corrales in January?
1: So, yeah, that 130-pound division is kind of interesting right now. You, we've got a few veterans at the very top. you got guys like Miguel Burchell, Jojo Diaz is still around, Jamil Herring, Andrew Cancio, Tevin Farmer. Uh, the division's big dog. Javante Davis looks like he's going to be bouncing back and forth between 130 and 135. Uh, Leo Santa Cruz, if he wants to, could probably stay at 130 and make some real noise. So it's a bit top heavy at the moment, uh, the division. But there are, as you mentioned, some younger guys jockeying for position. Uh, You've got a couple of Tajik boxers um, based in Russia. Uh, Shavkat Razimov, who last year scored a come from behind stoppage win over South Africa's Zingay Vusile, who's another highly touted uh, prospect. And Razimov might be the cream of that young crop. Um, he's got a compatriot, uh, Mohammed Yakubov, who's worth keeping an eye on. But Colbert, I think, is right in there behind them, maybe right up with them. I'd put him ahead right now of Xavier Martinez, uh, and a bit farther ahead of, say, Oshaki Foster, who we saw win on Ring City the other week. Um Arbaleda to me isn't quite on that caliber. I, I think his fight against Velez showed Who he is and what's good and less good about him He can be crowd-pleasing and aggressive And fast-paced But he can also be vulnerable and hittable I I think, I feel like Velez Is like a B to B plus caliber fighter You know, good enough to give a really good accounting of himself In losing to somebody like a Ryan Garcia But not on the level to really challenge him And that's exactly the kind of caliber of opponent Against him, you'd make Arboleda a narrow favorite uh, Nine times out of ten You know, I think, you say Jezreel Corrales, on the other hand, who we saw Colbert beat, um, despite the fact that his career seems to be running into the buffers a little, you know, on his day, he can beat most people. He he sent Takashi Uchiyama into retirement. He was looking good against Alberto Machado until Machado, like, caught him. Mm. Um, So what I really liked about that win from Colbert was the way that he took on a guy who's really been at the very top level. Uh, And really kind of neutralized him quite well. I mean, Corrales is a dangerous fighter. But what I loved about Colbert, I loved the way he was slipping some of those punches. I love his footwork. I love the way he's able to move while staying really compact and really balanced. He did that. He can box on the outside, but he can also box really well on the inside. Um, He can stun you, despite the fact that he doesn't have a very good KO record. And he did stun Corrales a couple of times. I thought that colbert's win against corrales proved to me that colbert probably has the potential to have a much higher ceiling than somebody like arboleda does i thought it was one of the better wins by a 130 pound young prospect that i've seen in a while
2: agreed it was impressive but it was also very boring as i recall so that's uh it doesn't necessarily hurt his ceiling but a bit of a strike right. against him
1: right indeed uh in the co-feature uh a 10 rounder in the 140 pound division uh it's not prospect versus prospect it's prospect versus former title holder uh showbox graduate richardson hitchens uh, like colbert also from brooklyn risks his 11-0 record against dominican Argenis mendez 25-5-3 with one no decision uh he comes into this fight mendez riding a rare two draw streak 10 round draws against Juan Araldez and Anthony Peterson in 2019 so this is a significant step up for Hitchens uh although there are questions about how much Mendes has left at age 34. Eric how impressed are you with Hitchens recent showbox performances do you see anything to indicate whether he is or isn't ready for Mendez? or is he just ready enough that a third straight Mendez draw is in play here
2: yeah, three draws in a row. Uh, that's that's not kissing your sister. That's uh, going to third base <laughs> with your sister. Uh, and I can say that because I don't have any sisters, so it's not as disgusting to think about for me as it is for some people. <laughs> um, anyway, I uh, can't rule out the draw. Uh, I, I think it's possible that Mendez is that level of test for Hitchens right now. Uh, Mendez's manager, Ricardo Salazar, was very honest when asked uh, about his fighter recently. He said, Mendez is not at his peak. He's starting to slow down, but the results of his last two fights show he can't be taken lightly. I think he's at that point where a true blue chipper will handle him without too much trouble, but Hitchens might be one notch below true blue chipper. Mm -hmm. He's a pure boxer, uh, has a tremendous sharp jab and very little punching power. Hitchens has superior hand speed. I expect his speed to give Mendez a lot of problems, but Mendez has seen it all. He's faced plenty of guys around Hitchens' level. He won't panic in there if Hitchens proves hard to keep up with in the early rounds. And then we'll see in the middle rounds how much the experience edge matters. Uh, Mendez has fought in 16 scheduled 10 or 12 rounders. This is only the third such fight for Hitchens. So we'll see. This feels like Just the right level for him to step up Mm -hmm. and find out what he's made of. Mendez is certainly much better than Hitchens' last opponent, Nick DeLomba, whom he shut out. Uh, So maybe it'll be a draw, maybe not, but it'll at least be closer and a stiffer test than that last fight on Showbox. Uh, opening up the broadcast, we have a middleweight fight between another Showbox alum and another veteran, although the Showbox alum didn't do as well with his opportunities there as Richardson Hitchens did. It's Ronald Ellis, 17-1-2, 11 KOs, one no contest. He was inconsistent on Showbox, went 1-1-2, one, one, and, and his last two fights in 2019 tell the story of his ups and downs, a majority decision lost to DeAndre Ware and a majority decision win over Emmanuel Alim. He's taking on Russia's Matt Korobov, 28-3-1, 14 KOs, well known to any serious boxing fan for his dramatic KO defeat to Andy Lee and near upset of Jamal Charlo. Last time out, one year ago, Korobov, a southpaw, tore his left rotator cuff in round two against Chris Eubank Jr., bringing their fight to a disappointing early finish. One interesting element of this fight is the 160-pound weight limit, as Ellis is really a super middleweight and has never scaled below 162 pounds. Kieran, do size and weight play a role here? Does age play a role, with Korobov nearing his 38th birthday? And would you say this is a bit of a loser leaves town match? It's the last chance on this sort of stage for these fighters.
1: It's a loser leaves town match, I think, if Ellis loses. Um, Because if he does, it means, you know, to follow on from what you were saying, he will have once again fallen short. Um, on Showtime, uh, you know, so that will, you know, drop him to what, one, two and two on on Showtime. If Karabov loses, it could be a loser leaves town if he decides to leave town at age 38, you know, with a long amateur career and, and 33 pro fights behind him. But he will have been there and done it. So if he decides he wants to continue, even if a, even with a loss, I think there'll be a spot for him in these kind of fights, although, he, you know, he'll be very much in the gatekeeper or B-side kind of role. Um, so, so I think that's the slight distinction there. It's difficult for me to figure out how much of a factor weight could be. As you said, Ellis has previously never been below 162 and is normally a 68-pounder. Korobov has been high. He has been up to 175, um, even though he's really a middleweight. Uh, what's interesting to me is the Korobov team was really happy and surprised that Ellis took the lower weight. And Ellis took the lower weight readily because he said something like, I'm the bigger fighter, so I might as well get low and then rehydrate to 172 on the day, which doesn't sound like a tremendous strategy. Um, but, you know, that that's his mindset going into this. For me, out of all those three that you pose, the more interesting and tangible is age and specifically Korobov's age. Right. Um, and actually, it is a really integral element to my pick so with your indulgence sir i propose that we leap straight into making the picks as sure. if we want to start with that leap um, away
2: yeah
1: um, and you know there's a certain desperation in my in my moving to these picks as i am in proverbial need of the old hail mary here we have just two showtime fight cards remaining this is the classic case I was doing a 12-round fight pick year when I needed a 15-round <laughs> fight pick era. Uh, I am trailing <laughs> by 10 points, 59 to 49. or either Korobov or Ellis going to help bail me out here? I don't know about this. But I will say this, you know, to, to get back to the age issue here. I found it when I said set down to think about it a little bit more difficult pick than I initially imagined when at first I saw Ronald Ellis against Matt Korobov. I didn't think it was going to be a terribly hard pick, but um, the, the issue for me is potentially Korobov's age. Not that he's shown necessarily his age in a series of bad performances because he hasn't, but there have been a couple of interesting like hints. Uh, he did fade badly down the stretch of his bout with Emmanuel Alim. And although he should still have wound up with the win and not a draw, Maybe that's kind of a signal that, you know, perhaps he doesn't quite have the stamina anymore, although perhaps he also showed that in his loss to Andy Lee several years ago. Uh, You mentioned that he hurt his shoulder against Eubank. That can happen but it's probably more likely to happen if you're getting old and you're maybe starting to break apart a little bit. So it can be the case as you get older, especially if you've got a lot of amateur fights behind you as well, that in different fights you start showing these individual niggling signs that maybe age is creeping up on you, and sometimes a bunch of them can all come together in one fight. Is that going to happen in this fight? Maybe. Will Ellis be the one who's able to take advantage of that? Maybe not. Um... Look, some boxers are excellent sparring partners. Uh, my buddy Ishay Smith was one, right? He got this reputation from sparring with Fernando Vargas and Oscar De La Hoya and Shea Mosley. Ross another one. Uh, the Canelo team love him as a sparring partner. They bring him in a bunch. He puts in really good, strong rounds for them and they keep bringing him back. But in the same way that Ishay never quite performed in the ring in the big fights, the way he did as a sparring partner, it's been a little bit the same for Ellis. Uh, he's been a bit of a disappointment. I I kind of think that might continue here. I think that Korobov, even just working off of muscle memory and experience here, will just be that bit too good for him. I wouldn't be surprised if Korobov fades again down the stretch and Ellis comes back at him. But I think it'll be a little bit too late for him. And I see Korobov with a 96-94 type decision. And I think it's going to be a unanimous one.
2: Yeah. On the surface, it looks pretty straightforward to me that Karabov should be the favorite. He has the experience, better pedigree. He's a Southpaw. Ellis has to boil down in weight, whatever toll that ends up taking on him. Um, but there are two X factors with Karabov and you hit both on both of these where our our minds went to the same place as to what to be uncertain with. He, he could suddenly get old and he had that serious shoulder injury and declined to get surgery. And, uh, I speak from experience when I say that once some part of your body begins to break down, it, it tends not to start unbreaking down. Uh, you, you can hope to maintain physically, but you can't really hope for right. much in the way of improvement past a certain age. So so that's the concern here, that, that Korobov's body has had enough of this sport uh, You know, at, at almost age 38 and after a long and distinguished amateur career. But I still make him the favorite. Uh, Ellis has failed to deliver, having these really close fights against opponents who aren't quite on Korobov's level. Uh, He says he'll outwork Korobov. He's going to need to because I don't think he can match him technically. Uh, I have bad news for you, Kieran. You need to make up ground, but you're not making it up here because I'm (laughs) going Korobov by unanimous decision also, maybe something in the the eight round to two range. Um, And uh, now I'll make my pick in Hitchens versus Mendez, where... I don't quite see the veteran as the favorite in the same way I do with Karabov, although it's extremely close here. Uh, If there are betting odds on this fight that become available and I see that either guy is an underdog of two to one or more, I'm taking a shot on that guy. Like I laid out a few minutes ago, uh, Hitchens' speed and jab should serve him well early. But if Mendez can hang in there, I expect he'll find some opportunities to turn the tide. And I think he should be able to hang in there because even though his chin is questionable, it's not as questionable as Hitchens' power. Uh, Hitchens is confident going into this fight. Uh, he sparred with Juan Araldez and says he handled him easily and Mendez could only get a draw with Araldes. Uh So he's coming in with a lot of confidence and I will share Hitchens' confidence. Mendez will have moments, but not quite enough of them. Give me Hitchens by unanimous decision.
1: Yeah, look, I'm with you in the sense that I don't think Hitchens is Good enough to be a very clear favorite um, here uh, over the veteran. Um, you know, Mendes, has, you know, he's been around the block. He's been a very solid contender slash titleist for a number of years. But as you said, even his manager admits he's crested and that he's slowing down. Um, he hasn't fought in 19 months. He hasn't won in two and a half years. Um, That said, his quality of opposition, Mendes, has been excellent. I mean, his last six opponents had a record going in of 119, five and one. That's way more experience against tough opposition than Hitchens has even come close to having. He's probably forgotten in the last 19 months more than Hitchens has to this point learned. Um, And so for that reason alone, I do expect him to make it a, a difficult evening at times for Hitchens. But whereas theoretically in terms of just pure game strategy i should be trying to pick the opposite pick f- for you just because if i fall further behind i fall further behind but i need to like be taking these wild swings and i hope that i might catch up but i just don't see it i just don't see it um i do expect hitchens ultimately to have that little bit too much class to prevail he is i think at times going to be in a tough fight uh he'll have moments where he'll show that he's that he's a pretty decent prospect um i don't know how he'll separate himself tremendously this could be like a 96 94-ish kind of unanimous decision but it will be a unanimous decision for Richardson hitchens and one way or the other i will after two fights be exactly <laughs> 10 points behind you
2: <laughs> yeah yeah that, that works for me uh, just, yeah, uh, let it's... me let me roll
1: right toward that 2020 victory all right and if you're smart, whatever you've already written down for a prediction to the main event, you'll just go with me. Um, <laughs> you but... you have my word that I will uh, stick with what I've written down. If it differs okay. from yours, it differs from yours. Okay. Um, so in the main event, I quite like watch. I like watching Jaime Obeleta. I like his aggression. I like the fact he's not afraid to, um, to throw punches, but as a consequence, you know, he, he can take them. Uh, he does take them. He's been down three times in his career. Once, uh he was down and out. Um, watching his punches, they're not the fastest because they're not the straightest. He leaves room, I think, for a fast-handed boxer to with straight punches to throw those punches right down the middle of his shots. And Colbert is most definitely a fast-handed, straight-punching guy. Uh, you look at someone with a record like Colbert's, 14-0 with just five KOs. You might assume he's just a fancy boxer and mover with very little by way of a, a punch. It's not entirely true. He can punch. Um, you know, just ask Miguel Beltran Jr. if he's woken up yet, but he, he just he really makes the effort to sit down on his punches. He's constantly moving. Um, he has great footwork uh, that re- enables him to remain compact and balanced that can make him, you know, to get to your earlier point, perhaps a little bit frustrating to watch sometimes. Um But I think that he does definitely have the technical ability here. And I think it's a good style matchup for him. I think Abeledo will be coming at him. I think he'll he'll look to be uh, roughing him up. He'll be looking to throw some punches. But I just think Colbert, he's just going to be slipping a lot of those punches. He'll be inside and slipping punches. He'll be outside and slipping punches and countering him and turning him. It might be sloppy. It might be frustrating. I'll probably enjoy it a bit more than you. Chris Colbert will enjoy it more than any of us, and he will win a relatively wide unanimous decision. It's going to be a late night.
2: Uh, Yeah, it has the potential to be that. uh, But... Good news for you here. You you have a chance to make up a, a point or two, possibly, on me. Um, I agree with you that uh, Arboleda will create a more fan-friendly, stylistic matchup than uh, Colbert's last fight uh, against Corrales was. Uh, Arboleda's fight with Jason Velez was a lot of fun, even though uh, he was dropped in the, the 12th round and, and nearly went down a second time. I did think he was the deserving winner there. So I really like this pairing. I hope he can push Colbert and force him to dig deep. Uh, Arboleda has a big left hook. Maybe he'll land it, and we'll find out what Colbert is made of. But ultimately, as we've been saying all throughout this preview, Colbert is the higher ceiling talent here. He's just ridiculously fast, really able to handcuff his opponents with that speed, and it's going to be tough for Arboleda to get off. Even though Colbert isn't a heavy-handed puncher, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Arboleda finds himself having to open up and take some risks in order to stay in the fight. And that opens the door for Colbert to hurt him. So I'm going to say Arboleda becomes KO victim number six on Colbert's record. He'll hurt Arboleda and finish him with a TKO in round 10.
1: All right. So bold. I, so, the and, bold and, prediction and... of one confidence of, <laughs> of cruising to victory anyway.
2: Yeah. Pretty, pretty much. And also, you know, some some wishful thinking to get to bed six minutes earlier than uh, if your prediction (laughs) comes true. (laughs) Uh, One other major fight on the calendar for next weekend, Saturday in London, streamed by DAZN, Anthony Joshua defends his heavyweight belts against Kubrat Pulev. And the plan as of now is to have 1000 paying spectators on hand at Wembley. Kieran What sort of chance do you give Pulev of springing the upset? Is there a possibility that Joshua gets caught looking ahead to the much talked about showdown with Tyson Fury?
1: I think if he gets caught, it won't be because he's looking ahead to the possibility of a Fury fight. I feel like that's been on the agenda for so long now that even though it now appears to be that much more tangible at this stage, it should all be white noise to him. I, I think if he gets caught, it's because he simply gets caught um and we do have still some question marks about aj going into this i mean since his shot lost to andy ruiz we've only seen him a subsequent we haven't seen him up against a legit heavyweight we've only seen him up against a tub of crisco and an andy ruiz suit so we don't know you know you know we don't know up against somebody who might be able to bring pressure how he's going to react subsequent to that that loss to ruiz uh you know and i think I can't remember if it was you who alluded to this the other week or is it was Breadman, and that the interesting question will be whether the AJ that we saw in that Ruiz rematch is going to be the AJ we see from now on. It was one of you guys, I feel, brought that up. Yeah, I up. think
2: I said something to that effect.
1: Yeah, and, and it feels with this fight to me that to some extent... That would be the smart AJ for us to see at least early on. I think he should have too much skill, strength, speed, and power for Pulev. But I think the sensible thing is to do, at least initially, somewhat what he did against Ruiz early on with the proviso that as the fight evolves you would expect and hope to see aj gradually stepping it forward a little bit turning it up digging his heel his toes into the canvas a little bit more you know looking to wind up the pressure um you know i think pulev even though he's not like a a noted real ko puncher the smart play for him probably is to try to come out early And have some impact on on AJ and just test that chin, test that confidence, see what he has, throw it all out there uh, and and see what the hell happens. Whereas I think AJ's goal would be to keep it calm and quiet. And then, like I said, just gradually wind it up. And I think that's probably what AJ will do. uh, And I would expect him to either get a points win or end with a sort of like stoppage somewhere between round seven and 11, something like that would be my guess. Okay uh one other fight of note also on saturday on espn Shakur stevenson one of the brightest potential stars in american boxing meets toka khan clary of providence rhode island via monrovia liberia also felix verdejo and edgar Berlanga in separate bouts on that card nice card uh what are you looking to see from shakura stevenson here and is he starting now to get in range of pound for pound considerations yes stevenson's at that
2: interesting spot in his career where he has a belt and there are a lot of people who see his talent and believe he's already the best featherweight in the world right now but he hasn't faced any noteworthy opposition he doesn't have much of a resume yet i was somewhat surprised to see that tbrb doesn't even rank him in the top 10 at featherweight uh but then again looking at his opponents so far yeah, maybe he hasn't even earned a top 10 ranking. Mm. Stevenson is that classic modern guy who has a belt, but is still being matched like a prospect. And that's fine. He's only 23. Clary is a perfectly serviceable opponent who is unlikely to test Stevenson at all. So what would I like to see from Stevenson? I would like to see him knock Clary out. Simple as that. Uh, And to me, it, it is definitely too soon for pound for pound talk, but there is a bit of that, buzz starting to develop because he looks like a future pound for pound guy. Hopefully in 2021 we see him in with someone like Navarrete and and we learn about Stevenson. Uh, I don't expect us to learn much with the Clary fight, though. Uh, but meanwhile, also on this card, uh, just announced a day or two ago, Brian Campbell's 2020 Fighter of the Year, Clay Collard. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it, yeah, it, it all shapes up as a fine card to fast forward through in parts on Sunday morning after I stay up late watching the Showtime
1: card. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. After watching three cards, three fights go the distance on the yes. Showtime card. Yeah. Here you go. Perhaps. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's cover some outside the ring news. Uh, beginning with the business story, uh, Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones reportedly generated more than 1 million buys on pay-per-view some reports have cited 1.2 million right before we started recording this I actually even saw a 1.6 being floated around although I don't believe that any firm number has been announced and confirmed but if this event indeed broke the million buy barrier first of all a how surprised are you Eric that there are apparently many more people out there who unlike us like to have fun um and (laughs) b We're definitely seeing another Tyson fight, aren't we? Yeah, so I'm
2: surprised it got that high. Uh, I don't think anyone was really expecting this number of buys, but it makes some sense, sadly. Uh, I would have guessed it was going to do about half a million, and I Mm. might have thought 700,000 maybe was the upper end, but it far exceeded all that. Uh, But I expected it to do well because... From the moment the Tyson hitting the pads video first went viral and then this fight was being discussed, people in my life who never talked to me about boxing, who've literally never heard the names Errol Spencer, Danny Garcia, I would imagine, were sending me texts or emails asking me what I thought about Tyson Jones. It was that kind of fight that, as poorly as it was promoted... As frustrating as it was to have no idea what the rules were, uh, a large segment of the population, mostly people who don't follow boxing closely these days, were fascinated by it and hooked by the nostalgia and or the delusion that Tyson could still knock out the best heavyweights in the world if he wanted to. Um, plus, let's not ignore that Jake Paul beefed up the buy rate. Yeah. You know, I I would guess there were 100,000 or so customers who paid the 50 bucks mostly to see him fight. Uh, So anyway, the the number this did is pretty stunning. I was not expecting it to be that high, but I'm also not one of those people who thought it was only going to do 100,000 or 200,000 pies. I could tell it had crossed over to some extent. Uh, Mm. And yeah, to answer question B, Tyson is doing it again. Uh, The Legends Tour... That general idea, I don't think that'll work, but the Tyson tour, I think yeah. it will for another fight or two against the right opponents, by which I mean Tyson Holyfield three. Exactly. Um, at this point, I would be surprised if that fight doesn't happen in 2021. Uh, Our next story, I have to give you credit here, Kieran. You speculated publicly that this might be the case before anything had been reported, but Daniel Dubois suffered a fractured orbital bone against Joe Joyce, not to mention nerve damage and a bleed on the retina, putting him out of commission for at least five months. Does this change anything about the is he a quitter conversation that people were having a week ago?
1: Well, it should do. But it's worth emphasizing again, though, I think, something that we mentioned last week, which is that the most vociferous bandiers of the Q word in the immediate aftermath were not people like you or me. But Dubois' fellow professionals, um, with one really notable exception, uh, the aforementioned Anthony Joshua, who said, If Daniel needs someone to speak to, he should call me. It's easy for people to criticize from outside the ring, but some people have been out of order. I hear people talking respectfully about tapping out in MMA fights. Then when a boxer stops because his eyeball is about to fall out, they call him a quitter. Are they serious? Um good for him for 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 standing up for his fellow heavyweight there um look the non-judgmental concerns that arise about the ending of that fight remain um once a boxer does opt out there's concern he you know might explicitly or otherwise do so again and now added to that is the concern that when you suffer this much damage how concerned are you going to be going into the ring about it in future um none of that is a judgment just a statement about how precarious it is to be a boxer and how thin is the line between success and failure. It's why so many of us are so quick to condemn those who we feel fail to take every conceivable risk to cross that line. And it's also, I think, why we should be more understanding of the calculus of those who maybe choose to take a step back on one particular night so that they might be able to cross that line again in the future um Some quick hits: uh, Jarrell Big Baby Miller has been suspended two years by the Nevada State Athletic Co- Commission for his latest failed drug test over the summer, which effectively puts to an end. Uh, given the combination of Miller's toxicity and age at this point, at least at a top fight level, a career that had promised at one point so much, not least given Big Baby's charisma and personality, uh, one career. This still has a lot of runway ahead of it. It's that of Clarissa Shields, as we discussed with Moro. She has signed a multi-year deal with the MMA promotion PFL, although she does intend to continue boxing also. And also closing the door on his in-ring career voluntarily is the Latin snake Sergio Mora, one of boxing's nicest and most eloquent practitioners who announced his retirement from boxing on Friday his 40th birthday, ending a 29-5 and two career that saw him win the first season of the contender and upset Vernon Forrest to claim a title at 154 pounds. And that has enabled him to pivot seamlessly into a burgeoning role as one of the sport's very best, I think, color commentators. Uh, Eric, thoughts on any of those items there? Uh, Seems about right for Big Baby in terms of the punishment he's getting. And uh, yeah, he'll
2: be 34 uh, two years from now. That window is closing i don't know what promoter or network would take a chance on him anyway so i'm with you in thinking that his boxing career at least on any meaningful level is effectively ko'd uh, he is the meme of tyson fury uppercutting himself come to life basically. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um claressa as Morrow said Styles will be very important when finding her an MMA opponent, but I hope boxing remains her focus. She's she's too good at it to get sidetracked by another sport. And uh, Sergio, he last fought two and a half years ago. He was basically already retired, but just keeping his options open. Uh, but it was time. And as best I can tell, he's getting out with some money in the bank with all his marbles and with, as you said, a good career in broadcasting going. Um you know, I'm not really friends with any boxers uh I'm friendly with a few, uh, and Sergio is pretty high on that list of boxers I'm friendly with. I would at least call him a twitter friend uh I'd almost call him a real life friend uh he's a good guy, so yeah, I'm happy yes. for him. I hope he's satisfied with what he accomplished and uh doesn't get the urge to come back and fight Mike Tyson or anything like that. <laughs> Um, And one more quick note, uh, RIP to veteran New Jersey referee Lindsey Page, who died on November 26th, though no details are known as to his exact age or cause of death. Lindsay Page had probably the finest footwork of any boxing referee during my time on the beat. He glided around the ring like mm. no one else. Um, before Steve Willis came into my life, Lindsay Page was the original ref you could focus on all fight and actually be entertained. Uh, so our condolences to his family. And rather than end the podcast on that sad note, Let's end it on a different, somewhat sad note, (laughs) by giving our thoughts on the Showtime documentary, Macho, the Hector Camacho Story, which premiered Friday night. And I'll go first and just say that I thought it did an excellent job charting his rise and fall as a boxer. Uh, I wasn't watching boxing until the later stages of his career, so while I'd heard about his extraordinary talent, at least pre-Rosario fight, I hadn't seen much of it. Uh, But you could sure see it in the footage here.
1: Yeah.
2: I don't know if he's an all-time underachiever, uh, a, a guy who was ruined to a degree by Rosario and by his addictions, or if he was just an athletic talent who reached his level and was always going to lose more than he won against the very best in the game after feasting on easier opposition early on on the way up there are definitely echoes of camacho's career to varying degrees in some guys who came after him like nasim hamed zab judah adrian broner uh anyway lots of good stuff in there from our colleague steve farhood from tim ryan and also From Hector Camacho Jr., a fighter. He's someone I was always critical of his entire career. I wrote a fair amount of not terribly nice things, Uh, but he came across in this as a likable guy and probably someone who, being named Hector Camacho, got him a lot of opportunities, but it was also something of a curse. And he seems to have come through it okay, all things considered. Uh, what did you think of the documentary, Kieran?
1: Yeah, you know what you mentioning Junior just that story that he told about the phone ringing, and it and him, he was what like eight, right. and he picks it up, and his dad's like, yeah, yeah, I'm in I'm in Florida. There is some money under the go under the pillow and check the under the pillow. There's some money if you need it, just spend the money. Right, it's just like that. He would, like. The the burden, the what it must have been like to have been the son of, of somebody like that was I, I I thought that was just a really interesting insight. Um you know, it's it's rather like yourself, I was only really tuned into Hector Camacho in that sort of second phase of his career, that post-Rosario phase. And I honestly and even then not super closely, and my general impression was just that the guy was a dick. Right. Um, but what was, what I really enjoyed by this, I was shocked by what a clearly charming young man he was on his way up. The, mm. the The way in which he seemed to really enjoy all of it, enjoy the boxing, enjoy the showmanship, enjoy the interaction with people. I don't know about you, but I was watching that part of the documentary, wondering how, thinking to myself, boy, I'll bet he was a joy to cover. And I'm wondering how I would have enjoyed covering his career and how I mm. would have covered his career. And, and, and I like to think that in those early days, I would have enjoyed it. And I would, you know, up until the point where it clearly happened that the cocaine took over more and more. And, and he just became, you know, those, that joy sort of disappeared both from his fighting and from the way he was. Um, but it was interesting that, you know, I, there was more to him, I think, in those early days than I'd appreciated based right. on what we saw there. And, uh, and, and I, I came away with a much greater understanding of both why he continued to operate in the spotlight and why there were so many who still continued to hope for the best for Hector Camacho up until the very end. Uh, yeah. I, I was, you and I texted a little bit about maybe the final reel, wasn't necessarily adding a great deal to it. Um, we didn't need to spend the final 15 minutes on not answering the question of who killed him. Right. Um, it could have ended earlier, but still when it was looking at Camacho specifically when he was alive int- well, there you go. It's sort of like in a way, a sort of illustration of his life when Camacho was there, It was compelling, and Mm -hmm. when he was gone, it was less so, and that kind of speaks to Hector Camacho's life generally, I thought. Mm -hmm. If you have not watched it, it is well worth watching. I learned a lot, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. All right, that will do it for another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Our thanks once again to Mauro Ronello for just a really, really enjoyable interview, Uh, one of the very favorites we've ever done. Can you come back next week (laughs) and the week (laughs) after? Seriously, Mo. thank you very, very much indeed. Uh, actually, we've got a lot to deal with next week, too, even without Amora Ronaldo, uh, We have to both recap and preview Showtime boxing cards, and we will look ahead to the ring returns of Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin, and we'll have Anthony Joshua to look back on. Goodness mm-hmm. me. Um, oh, we better start prepping. Uh, <laughs> plenty, of, plenty to talk about next week. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Uh, be safe, be kind, and be well.